All right, well, good evening and welcome to another episode of Take the Two. Now, I guess, unfortunately, it's a standalone this weekend. For anyone that wants their regular footy fix, you just have to make do with the two Origin games. But I guess with that in mind, round, first, round 15 certainly threw up some interesting clashes, guys. Yeah, it did. Um, a lot of big scorelines, as has been, you know, much publicised. But, um, yeah, big scorelines, a few close games as well in there. So we've got a bit of everything. Yeah, it was a good weekend of footy last week. I thought we had a couple of standout performances. Obviously, uh, some great team performances there from Melbourne and Manly on Saturday and Sunday, as well as Souths on the Thursday night. But I was really impressed with Sean Johnson up against the Cowboys. thought uh, Terrell Sloan had a great uh, start to his NRL career up against the Raiders. Uh, guided the Dragons home there to a nice two-point win, a much-needed two-point win. Uh, and as well, Newcastle, good to see them getting the job done in the wet up there. As they got a bit of a, a leapfrog on the, on the Warriors, who are chasing them for that top-eight spot. Yeah, there was certainly plenty of interesting ones there, and we'll touch on those later. But obviously, you know, as you said, standalone weekend. That's because of the two Origin games this weekend, both the men and women. And I guess we'll start with the women's game on the Friday night up on the Sunshine Coast. And, you know, it, plenty of the, the big names are playing in this one, guys. Obviously, you know, for New South Wales, they've got uh, Jess Sergis, Isabel Kelly, Kezi Apps. We do have Keely Davis and Kennedy Charrington making their debuts. And, Equally, Queensland have their, you know, star-studded lineup. Uh, the majority, or a decent amount of which have come from that successful NRLW Broncos side. Obviously, you know, that's Julia Robinson, Ali Brigginshaw, Chelsea Lenarduzzi, and I guess for Queensland as well, they're probably blessed that the BHP Premiership was a success up in Queensland, and we've seen quite a few of, quite a few of the girls that have been playing in that get their start in in Origin. Yeah, it's awesome to see that, that that success follow through and also give these women opportunities um, to continue playing football throughout the year and not just at the end of the um, the end of the year like we've seen in the past. So it's an exciting, um, exciting game. It's a great atmosphere as usual there. Um, you know, you'd, you'd look at Queensland and think that they'd be, um, you know, probably favourites to win. But I have a feeling that, yeah, I think New South Wales might get up um, this year. Again, yeah, Jess Surge is probably my favourite player um, at times. I think she's better than her boyfriend, Zach Lomax. But, um, yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I think New South Wales have got a looking good. Yeah, I agree. I think we're in for a really good clash. I think both sides line up really nicely up against each other. I think the battle of the fullbacks is definitely one to watch. We've got Tamika Upton, who's the star of the NRLW over the last couple of seasons, and up against uh, Batil Veli Welsh. And then, as well, the, the halves. Obviously, uh, Zahara Tamara gets the, the run for Queensland in the seven jersey, but we've got Ali Brigginshaw in the walk position as she played successfully for the Maroons and Brisbane last season. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out up against Maddie Studden, who's back in the side after a mixed run of form last year that saw her drop from the side. So it'll be interesting to see how Maddie comes out and plays uh, in her return to origin. Yeah, that's not a bad shout on Sergis, Nat. Um, just having a look, she had uh, 17 tries in 15 games playing for Helensburg in the Harvey Norman uh, Women's Premiership. So, Literally, I mean, it's no surprise. Well, we've obviously seen her excel for the Dragons in the NRLW, obviously for New South Wales and Australia as well. And yeah, look, it's just going to be a close game. I think, you know, traditionally, the I guess, like you said, Queensland have had the rub of the green this one. But, you know, I mean, equally, like with the BHP Premiership, the Harvey, Norman's, Harvey Norman Women's Premiership has, I guess, really helped the women's game from a New South Wales perspective to to find those next talents and to sort of, I guess, not always have to rely on, you know, your core three or four players. And that's only, a, I guess, a testament to the push to find that next big star. And certainly this 
Origin Arena is a perfect chance for them to establish themselves. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, anything to see the women's game getting bigger and bigger. And, you know, we spoke last week about um, the increase of a few more teams in the NRLW. Um, so it's just very exciting to see this get bigger and just see the talent um, put on show when these women become more household names. Um, so it's very exciting. Yeah, and I think that uh, something that New South Wales will definitely be looking to lean on is that extra experience, just having a look at some of the stats produced by NRL.com. New South Wales are leading the, uh, the experience with 31 Origin games compared to uh, Queensland's 19. And then you've got uh, five players in there, Isabel Kelly, Colin Baxter, Smart Matalfa, Hannah Southwell and Kezi Apsu have played in all five games. And I think those combinations are going to really come in handy for them. But obviously that's coming up against this Queensland side made up of uh, a number of players from the successful Brisbane NRLW side. So they've got some existing combinations there. And what we've learned from the men's game only a couple of weeks ago with uh, Cleary and Willi is just how uh, beneficial it can be to bring those club combinations straight into the Origin Arena. Yeah, it certainly is. And, you know, I guess... We're in for a very interesting contest on the Friday night and equally on the Sunday, obviously, you know, this is, it, it's the must win for Queensland. Lose this, you lose the series, potentially 3-0 given game three is going to be in Sydney. And I guess from a New South Wales standpoint, there's not too much to talk about. Probably, the, I guess the talking point is Angus Crichton coming back into the side, which, you know, we I guess we expected, obviously, only didn't play uh, game one because of his suspension. But for the Queenslanders, I mean, I guess they... They're probably almost in panic stations, I guess, that desperation mode. And we have Reese Walsh, who at 18 years old, after seven NRL games, he, this is going to be the furnace. He's going straight into the Origin Arena at fullback, obviously. No Kalen Ponga, no AJ Brimson. So they're a bit short there. And I guess the test is on for Reese Walsh to see just how he goes at this level, given the physicality or the, the physicality we expect of the game. I mean, I think if you had told me, you know, this time last year, oh, they're going to put someone who's played seven games into Origin, I'd call you crazy. But I don't think they've got many other options at all whatsoever. And I think that, um, you know, putting Reese Walsh in as much as it, um, you know, might be a bit of a knock to his confidence and it's going to be a very interesting learning experience for him. I think it's probably the right decision. As soon as Pongal is out, you need that spark, you need something. And there's very few players that have that extra little pizzazz. And Reese Walsh has it, even though we've seen, you know, um, not too much of him so far. He's really got that. The main thing I worry about with Reese Walsh is his defensive reads are really not up to scratch at the moment. Um, we've seen that a few times in the recent Warriors games, and I'm very worried about him facing up against that back line, um, the New South Wales back line, which was so lethal in game one. It might be a bit of a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think that uh, it's probably a bit premature to be putting Reese Walsh in there. I think that they've got a number of good options there that they could have placed there instead. I would have liked to have seen Valentine Holmes at fullback again, and we see Ronaldo Mortalo on for the wing, my man. I reckon he needs to be in that squad 100%. He produced an outstanding performance last week up against the Cowboys, just having a look at some of his stats on the week. And 154 metres off 17 runs. Uh, he was ta- uh, busted left, right and centre and really creating some great so the Sharks playmakers to get in and around the ruck. And the start that he provided to the sets for the Sharks is so, uh, very similar to what we see from Brian Toto for New South Wales. And I think that it would have been... A really great matchup to see Ronaldo up against Toto in the absence of Xavier Coates, but I just can't see this team matching the firepower of New South Wales. I think Reese Walsh should have been in the 14 jersey, come on against the tiring force later in the game, and really hope that Queensland's defence can get them home. But yeah, I think we're going to see Reese Walsh really peppered with the high ball. We saw him struggle with it up against Newcastle in the wind last week. And I think we're going to see plenty of high kicks from Nathan Cleary, putting Walsh under pressure and having Tommy Turbo uh, screaming through, as we've seen so many times before. 
Yeah, it's certainly a bit tough for him. I guess to be fair to Walsh on the, in that game against Newcastle, Tom, the wind in that game was oh, insane. Crazy, yeah. I mean, it, it, not very often you see the goalposts moving. <laughs> I mean, it's, it was just crazy. But yeah, look, it's it's it like Nat said. I guess it, if at the start of the year you told me that he was going to play, yeah, I would have said you're joking. But I think in a side that you know was so badly beaten, so badly outplayed in in game one, they sort of they missed that. You know, that, that X factor, that spark, like we saw what Ponga did in game three, I think it was last year. And, and you know, Reese Walsh, although he's more, in, you know, he's, he's not as experienced, obviously he has, you know, he, he just has that, I guess, the football smarts, particularly in attack to, you know, try and conjure something up. And look, it, it, it's going to be a big test for him. But I think for me, the surprising part about this Queensland side is why you would, I mean, I, I know he didn't have the best game one, to be fair, what Queensland player did, but I'm I'm amazed that you'd be playing David Fafita, who, as we've seen, is an absolutely destructive back rower. I mean, it, it, maybe apart from one or two games this year, he's basically, I guess, overpowered his opposite number on that edge, and he's coming off the bench, and it, it, I mean, it's... Particularly when he's replacing this dry arrow, who I guess for me is more of a prop lock, given he just makes a hard yards through the middle. And I mean, I know it's Paul Green, I guess, trying to use different combinations, play different things. But if you've got an X factor in David Fida, you've got to try and use him for as long as possible in the game. Yeah, agreed. And you know, look, Fafita obviously was maybe a bit overawed by the occasion last last origin but by no means was he the worst player on the field and I think that he'd be better for the experience as well so it's a perplexing decision that he's made um yeah I'm not quite sure with a few of the decisions he's made as well I'm not sure if I also would have dropped Xavier Coates um obviously he's got an error in him like there's no tomorrow but I think in terms of him being a long-term plan for Queensland which I assume he would be um dropping him now off one bad game um it's probably not the best approach so I think some of these decisions have been contentious yeah, I have to agree with that. I think we were just speaking there about Reese Walsh and what an X-Factor he is. There's not many players in the league at the moment who are a greater X-Factor than Xavier Coates. He's pretty tough to beat in a contest, particularly up against Brian Toto. So much was said uh, in the way up to Origin 1 about how Coates could exploit Toto's height. They just weren't in the right position to kick to him. But you add Christian Welsh into that pack, you add Josh Papaliti back into that pack, and all of a sudden they might be in the positions they need. And now they just don't have their X-Factor man to kick to anymore. The other decision I thought was... Uh, pretty perplexing was Andrew McCulloch. I know he's had a good start to the year in his combination with Ben Hunt down there at the Dragons, but I think Hunt should have been the one that got that start after the form that he demonstrated last year in Origin. Mm. Well, in the Origin arena, he just turns into an absolute tackle bot, Ben Hunt, and he put, pumped out 50 tackles a game last year in Origin and basically won the series for Queensland in some pretty tight games on the back of his defence. Hunt in, I think in that's the sort of well, um, yeah. the Dragons at the moment. And I think that that's the sort of player that they need in there. Queensland aren't going to be able to score 30, 35 points to match this Blues side. They've got to restrict the Blues to under 20 points and put on some tries through Cam Munster and Dewey Terry Evans. And I just can't see it happening, to be honest. No, I wouldn't be surprised if we're 2-0 heading back to Sydney. Yeah, it's going to be tough for Queensland, obviously. The test is how they can bounce back, obviously, after the that demoralising defeat in Game 1. And obviously, Suncorp, we're expecting, you know, a full house, obviously, it's going to be that support, if anything, that's going to get them over the line. And, you know, it, it's it's certainly not going to be easy to stop, I guess, these blue side guys that even 
even at club level, we saw Tom Trebojevic in that second half, which we'll discuss a bit later on in more depth. He, you know, tore the Gold Coast Titans defense to pieces. You know, obviously the likes of Adokar, quiet, but still does his job. And, you know, there's not too much you have to say about, you know, Nathan Cleary, Angus Crichton, even Cam Murray is coming back into the side. They're all having good seasons. And I guess it's just another chance for them to show that this is how the world side could be one that is going to win several series on the trot. Yeah, there. I think what we saw in um, game one was the combinations, and, and not just the club combinations, but the combinations between Latrell and Tommy Turbo and those two players with the halves, which is just something that we've been missing for such a long time. And if you can establish those connections and keep them playing well together, you can really start a, a dynasty, and that's what Queensland did with their eight in a row. So I think if we, they absolutely have the team to go on with this series 3-0 and to go on with a few series from here. Yeah, I think they're going to be pretty fired up after what happened last year, and they don't want to know it this way slip now. I think that they're going to be ruthless and go on with it. We've seen that from teams like Penrith over the last year. Uh, they don't wet weed slip. They don't they don't wet up when they're up 30-0, 40-0. They push on with the job, and I think we're going to see a similar mindset from the Blues. I think that they're really going to target Kurt Capewell again. Obviously, he was exposed in defence up against the much quicker Tommy Turbo in uh, game one, and I think they're going to look to go down that edge again. Unfortunately for Unfortunately for Queensland, there just was a real lack of alternatives in good form. Obviously, Branko Lee is still uh, on his way back from injury down there at Melbourne, and they just didn't have anyone to replace Capewell with in the centres. And uh, I know we spoke about Ben Hunt and the role he played last year. Kurt Capewell did an outstanding job for them, but it's just a completely different beast they're up against this year with Tom Trebojevic and that side. Yeah, and you got to remember last year, you know, Kurt Capewell was a wonderful player in that last game, but he was up against... Gutherson and I can't remember who the other centre was, but they were out of position, totally out of position. So this very different, um, very different for him being up against two specialist centres, you know, generational talents at that. Yeah, and I think that another combination that the Blues will be looking to exploit this week will be that of Damian Cook and James Tedesco, where it's been a match winner for them in the past and they didn't even need it in game one. It's another ace they've got up their sleeve if they need it later in the game. Yeah, it certainly is, and I mean, you'd be very hard-pressed to think that the Blues aren't going to make this 2-0, even if the game is at Suncorp, and I guess while everyone is talking about Origin as they should, given it's a standalone weekend, there was, and as we mentioned earlier, there was certainly plenty of good club action, some close games, some some blowouts, which of course has led to, I guess rightly or wrongly, all of the, you know, the, the PVL conspiracy, conspiracy theorists and you know, it, it's it's certainly been a much debated topic across social media and the Broncos and the Souths game, one-way traffic from the start. I mean, it, I guess it, the Broncos are in a rebuild. They may not want to admit it, but they're in a rebuild, obviously. You know, the they've got Ben Eichen now on as the head of football. You know, Dave Donaghy is literally cleaning, cleaning the front office and starting afresh. And I think really the only moment that the Broncos can... I guess look back on in that game and be proud of was the the try saving tackle that Xavier mm. Coates pulled off on Dane Gagai, which you'd have to say is probably, if not the best, probably top three so far this year. Oh, top three I've probably ever seen. Um, it was insane, and I think that his um, commitment to that tackle, even though they were down, I think by twelve or eighteen at the time, was just very indicative of the player that he is. Um, and I think he should be very proud of himself in that respect. As for Brisbane, you know we speak about it every week in that they've got a young team with lots of promise, but there's just so much going wrong there at the moment. Um, I think the news that Tavita Pangai Jr. wasn't to remain at the club was broken at halftime in the game, and he was interviewed about it directly afterwards. And this kind of thing is not, it's not indicative of a happy club. It's almost like the Raiders that we saw a few weeks ago as well. 
And when your front office is that muddled and when you're leaking your own stories to the press about your players like they have been this whole year, it's not a good environment to train in, to play in, and it's not going to get the best out of these players. So I think they need to really focus on, you know, the inside-out approach because it's just not, not going to come through on the field when it's so messy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that leads very well into something we're going to speak about later in the show and the addition of Ben Eichen as the head of football to sign a big deal there, obviously leaving Fox Sports. And I think Crash uh, Craddock was out on the back page this, uh, this evening and said that it's probably the biggest signing the Broncos have made in the past decade. Uh, and that's saying something because they've been signing Wayne Bennett. We've had Anthony Seabold up there, but Ben Eichen would make a real difference, as you said, now from the inside out. He's just got to get this club in order. We've seen uh, right throughout the NRL what, what a difference a person can make in a head of football role. We've seen someone like Frank Panisi down in Melbourne just completely turn a club around and turn into an absolute winning machine. He's been through the highs and the lows, and he's just absolutely developed that storm into a powerhouse outfit with a really strong nursery down there. I think the Brisbane have got to do the same. They once had a reputation for producing the best juniors in the game, and they're just not doing that at the moment. They've got plenty of good talents. They're not holding on to them. And I think that uh, the role of Ben Eichen is going to be really critical in getting them back to where they once were. Yeah, they certainly need something to change because, you know, the way the way they're playing, you, you can't really see them beating too many sides, unfortunately. And obviously now that the Bulldogs are at level pegging with them points-wise, it's, it's going to be a tough slog to the end. And I guess two sides who are in a tough slog of their own, albeit on the, on the cusp of the eight, obviously Sharks are eighth, Cowboys are ninth. 26-24, I mean, probably, I guess the Cowboys' chanters late on were hurt with that contentious Reese Robson sin binning. I mean, where, you know, I guess it's a bit farcical, guys, where a player gets sin binned, you know, obviously as a, it's a detriment to the Cowboys at that time. And then at the judiciary, nothing, zero weeks. And I guess you only have to look at it with Aiden Tom and literally, you know, I guess in a almost, almost crawling, basically, in, you know, on, as as he was falling, and Robson, who's making a a textbook tackle, and you know here he is getting sin binned, and that probably halted that momentum at the back end when the Sharks had or uh, the, the Cowboys, sorry, had already scored two tries in in basically two minutes through Kyle Felt. Yeah, I didn't get to watch um, the game in full, given I was at the Penrith game, sitting in the soaking rain, waiting for that to start. But, um, yeah, looking back, obviously, I've seen the tackle and I've seen the fuss about everything here. And I think, yeah, the biggest problem is the inconsistency in that you will have someone sent off or sin binned and then your team will suffer a detriment as a result of that. But then nothing will come from that from their charge. And I think that there is absolutely no issue with them trying to go hard on these head high tackles. And there's no issue with sin bins and send offs for really serious high tackles. But you've got to look at mitigating circumstances. And I think that's the number one thing that has been completely missed this round in general um, and is missed in some of them as well, um, not even alone this round. So, yeah, I think that's very unfortunate. Look, as for the Cowboys um, and their chances of winning that game, but for that sin bin. Um, I always find it a bit reached, I guess, to blame a loss or an op- or a loss of opportunity based on, on one move in a game because obviously, you know, they put themselves in the position where they were, that they were down and they had 75 other minutes or 70 other minutes to um, not be in that position and they didn't do it, but of course it hurt them. Yeah, it did, but I tend to agree with you there, Now I don't think that you could that one decision for the result of the match. I think that irrespective of whether that was intentional or not, it's still a penalty for high contact doesn't change the fact that that penalty still would have piggybacked the Sharks out of their own end, and it would have been enough for them to clutch out that game. They only had two minutes left in the game. That set pretty much ended the ended the match, and I think that you know, to blame the decision by the referee on the loss 
when it really had very little impact, I think it's a bit rich. I agree completely. I just someone has to play devil's advocate for the sake of it. So absolutely. And there you go. As as you mentioned that you would have been at the game on the Friday night, and I mean I, I don't think too many of us would have expected. Uh, I mean, obviously most would have expected Penrith to win, but I guess probably not by the margin that they did. Obviously, 26 points, 38 to 12, and I think what Penrith probably did well. I mean, obviously their attack was, you know, in in full swing, but I think what they managed to do well was probably you know, nullify the, the game-breaking ability of, of James Tedesco, obviously. You know, it's one of the first games in probably a little while that we haven't seen him make, you know, line breaks, even any half breaks, and really didn't, didn't have a chance. So I guess assert his authority on the game. And I think the Roosters' best player probably, in, I, I thought, was was Adam Kieran. Obviously got that try by just, you know, bu- I guess burrowing over from close range. And it, it's it's probably indicative of, as well, I guess where the Roosters are probably that lack of personnel is is eventually going to catch up to even the good teams, and you know I guess we saw it here two heavyweights, and in the end Penrith ran away with it. Yeah, I was very impressed with the performance. I guess it reminded us all about how good they were prior to that Origin period. You know, even I forgot how good um, these Origin boys were. Just their energy that they bring to the team is is unlike pretty much any other player in the competition with the exception of Tommy Turbo. Um, but, you know, I, another thing with the Roosters, and you can you talk about personnel and they've had horrible injuries and retirements and, and, and all of that type of thing. But, you know, a lot of the talk after the game was about that that Nathan Cleary slipping into the high tackle again and the send-off and the sin bin and the momentum change. But, you know, that happened in the that happened in the 25th minute or very early on in the game and they had so much time after that to gain that back and they didn't. And I think a lot of it these days is a bit of a mental game. And I think what I'm most impressed about with Penrith is their ability to stay calm even when the points start piling on. You know, we were down 12-0 in the first 10 minutes and we've seen how ugly that can get from other teams when you just bow your head and just, you know, kind of surrender and say, okay, it's not our night. But to fight back from that deficit, with or without the person being um, seen being for that 10 minutes and to keep that pressure on um, was very impressive to me. So I think that's something that a lot of other teams can take note of. Yeah, 100%. I really feel for James Tedesco in that Roosters lineup. Obviously, uh, what's been spoken about the form of Nathan Cleary and Tom Trebojevic over the last few weeks, and I even saw a couple of people floating on social media that Tom Trebojevic and Nathan Cleary have definitely passed James Tedesco as the best players in the league at the moment. But Man, James Zesco, he's playing with a really depleted Roosters lineup. You couldn't have expected this Roosters uh, side if you at the start of the season, considering the number of injuries they've had. They've had a number of retirements now. It's just a really, really terrible situation for Trent Robinson and his side. I think it's going to be really exciting to see James Zesco again in origin, just to remind ourselves of what a tremendous player he is behind a, a really strong forward pack. Obviously, the Roosters still have the likes of Jared Rear Hargrave, CSU Takayaho, Angus Crichton there as well. Well, but I'm really looking forward to watching Teddy back at his best this weekend. Yeah, I think so as well. But, you know, based on that as well, I think part of being a champion player is being able to, um, you know, be a Tommy Turbo effectively and go into a team that is not doing well and turn them around. So I think this would be good for him as well to experience that, um, you know, similar to, I guess, what he was experiencing at the Tigers before he left and went to the Roosters and he went to this automatically star-studded team. Um, So it'd be good for him to, um, I guess, have this experience now and, and try and, you know, turn that around for his team. Yes, yeah, certainly. If the Roosters are going to have any chance of the Premiership, you know, we need to see Tedesco at his best, and we know at his best he's, you know, number well, at this stage number one fullback in the game. And I guess a game that didn't have the points, it was 
I mean, for lack of a better word, it was pretty ugly. Obviously, the wet weather conditions didn't help. As we mentioned, the wind up at uh, Newcastle there was just absolutely insane. And, you know, it, it showed when 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 the some of the bombs were going up and they weren't making many metres with their bombs. Um, obviously, the Knights got the win in this one. Much needed win, obviously. Their season has been rife with inconsistency. And I guess in a, I guess a coach who's a bit under pressure and Adam O'Brien, you know, the win is good for his nerves and, and I guess for the team to try and get their season back on track and get away from, you know, 13th, 14th position. Yeah, definitely. You know, they needed that. We spoke, you know, last week about how disappointing they've been this year and over the past few years in general, they just um, haven't seemed to have those effort plays across the path like they have in, in the past and like, the Newcastle team is so proud of themselves for. So it was good to see them come back in a very, you know, grindy contest as well um, because those games show a lot more character sometimes than the big blowouts. So it was good to see them um, come back and get a win. You know, Mitchell Pearce was back um, and he's always going to make a positive impact on that team. But I think they'll be, um, again, um, bolstered when Pong eventually returns um, because obviously they haven't had a full-strength spine for, I think, since uh, round two last year. So they're in, you know, dire need of that. Yeah, and just simple game plan got them over the line. Uh, the Warriors have been known this season and uh, towards the end of last year as a team that can win games purely on the back of their completion rate. And it was down below 70%, 30 out of 44 sets, plenty of errors in there. Uh, just meant they didn't have enough ball. They had 10% less possession than Newcastle. And unfortunately for uh, Warriors fans, it was so frustrating to watch. They just kept letting Newcastle off the hook and attack and then providing them with great opportunities to attack in defence. And Unfortunately for the Warriors, Newcastle were too good and got that try uh, towards the end of the game to win the match. Yeah, and it was much needed. And I guess to that last point you made, Tom, two sides, that their fans are probably, I guess, struggling to watch at times given their own inconsistencies at St. George and Canberra. Obviously, narrow win for the Dragons in that one. And, you know, I guess it it's good for the Dragons, obviously, as Nat alluded to earlier, of coming into origin, Ben Hunt has certainly found form after coming back from his injury. Corey Norman, must be said, is probably playing some of his best footy in the last 18 months to two years. And as you mentioned, Tyrrell Sloan had a good debut at fullback and I guess certainly gave Anthony Griffin some questions as to whether he could be the guy to start there long-term given the likelihood that Dufty, Matt Dufty does depart. And yeah, I mean, I, I guess for the Raiders, it's more soul-searching and you know, we know where they've been at this year with obviously the George Williams saga, the Curtis Scott off-field incident, you name it, it's happened to Canberra this year. And I guess in the end, it's it, it's a win the Dragons will take, even if it wasn't a pretty one. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, good on the Dragons in that most people had them tipped the wooden spoon at the beginning of the year. So it's quite remarkable that they've been able to string together the performances like they have and you know they were looking very very good at the beginning of the year and that's trailed off a little bit and they're a bit more inconsistent now but they've definitely just got you know a bit of spark a bit more talent than they have in the past few years so I think we saw kind of some of that kind of come through um, on the weekend yeah Corey Norman had a wonderful performance um, which was um, good for him especially given the week before you know he had become publicized that he wasn't wanted at the club um, and I was really impressed with Sloan as well I thought he um yeah I thought he showed a bit of promise and it's probably a um Welcome sign for the Dragons fans after the Dufty debacle. Crucial win for the Dragons too. Having a look at their drop through to the end of the season, it's going to be tough for them to hold on to that spot in the top eight. They've got Manly, Souths twice, Penrith and the Roosters in their run home. So uh, they're really going to have to rack up a couple of wins in those games and really polish off the teams in the bottom eight 
uh, they want to hold on to their spot uh, in the finals. Yeah, it's not going to be easy. That's a strong. I think the shining light for Canberra, though, obviously, you know, we know he's had his own off-field issues. Obviously, the dogs uh, got rid of him after that incident at Coffs Harbour at the school, and you know, much was said about whether his career was at a crossroads. But I think since he's come back into the first grade side, Corey Horu and Naira has really made that edge spot his own. I think he's got something like six or seven tries this year, and you know, playing the 80 minutes, playing well, and. I guess probably overshadowing the likes of Josh Papali and, you know, Elliot Whitehead, those more fancied forwards that we've come to expect so much of in recent years at Canberra. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, he's definitely, um, I guess, made the most of his um, his second chance, but Canberra gave him after all that um, Bulldogs debacle last year. And yeah, he's been really impressive. And we had him at the Penrith um, a few years ago, and I was quite sad to see him go at the time um, because he was a very versatile back rower. Um, he's not just someone to just make the tackles and, and, and that's it. He's, you know, got a bit of flair about him and that's what we see for the Raiders every week. So, yeah, I don't know where you go from the Raiders. You've got a few, you know, few talented players there. But, again, I think the the club themselves need to sort themselves out because similar to the Broncos, it's not going to fit in on the field until off the field it sorts itself out. Well, I guess, you know, moving on, Tom, is probably not a game that you want to reminisce on too much. Unfortunately, obviously, you know, the Storm won 66-16 to 16 against against your Tigers side. And, I mean, it's not often that you see 10 players out of a possible 17 scoring a try. And that's what it was for Melbourne. And I guess, ultimately, where did it go wrong for the Tigers in this game? Yeah, yeah well, no, a whole lot went right. Uh, unfortunately, obviously, Melbourne like Penrith, like Parramatta, they're just too good once they get that roll on with momentum. And it was one of the more uh, remarkable displays. I think they had four tries before the Tigers even touched the ball. And uh, by that stage, the game was already over. I think it was over after about five minutes. The Tigers, I thought, did well towards the end just to work themselves back into the contest when it was well and truly over. They just got themselves back into the grind in the last half an hour. It could have got really far more ugly than it did. Uh, so I think there were a couple of positives towards the end of the game Tigers could take out. But that stage, obviously, Melbourne had completely switched off and the game was over. But uh, I think that it's just one that the Tigers will be really looking to erase uh, moving forward. I know what was said post-game about the, the way in which they lost, but at the same time, we're seeing some really good sides this year lose to teams like Melbourne and Penrith by some fair margins. We've seen uh, South Sydney polished off by Penrith um, a couple of weeks ago. And I think from both, or just like any other side, the Tigers just got to get on with it, move on. All the rubbish that's come out this week about clearing out the front office and clearing out the coaching We've done that before. We've been through it over the last 10 years. It's not the answer. Uh, the players are just going to find the spirit on the field, and unfortunately, it wasn't there on Saturday night. I mean, it's funny you bring up the South losses as well because the media certainly like to hop on the clubs like like the Tigers when they have a big loss, you know, and start talking about all the plays they've lost over the years, et cetera, et cetera. But when a team like South lose by 50 to both Penrith and, and um, Melbourne, they're just having an off day. Um, so it's interesting the different media reactions to that. But I think... A, it was a big example of how far the top sides are away from everybody else um, to the game on, on, on Saturday night. And I, I agree the second half, you know, I think the score ended up being 20, 20 to 18 in the second half. So to come out and, and to at least, you know, try and change your fortunes a little bit in that second half was, was good from the Tigers. Um, and I think Melbourne would actually be quite filthy with those tries they let him, you know, obviously it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant score, but you've got to see every game is, I guess, defense practice. And they did let off towards the end there. So I don't think it's the end of the world for the Tigers. And I think they just bounce back next week and, and, and just try and pick themselves up and give South the red hot go. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've seen that from the Tigers in the past. They've had plenty of 
whilst it's in years that they've almost made the top eight. I remember a couple of years ago, I think it was 2018, they um, might have lost to Canberra at Campbelltown in round five, and they Canberra put on 60 points, and the Tigers came back and had a shot to make the eight in the last game at Leichhardt and couldn't get it done, but still came ninth that season, as, as per usual. But, uh, yeah, I think the, the Tigers are a club that's able to, to put these results behind them and still move on next week. They've got a great chance to bounce back against South, so they travelled a couple of weeks ago at ANZ Stadium. Big crowd at Wyc- expected at Wycart, so it's going to be a really good spectacle on Sunday afternoon. I can't wait for it. And, yeah, fingers crossed they can put up a better performance. Yeah, look, I mean, the Tigers certainly only a couple of wins outside of the eight still. You know, obviously, they're on 10 and, you know, eight, eighth, ninth spot, they're on 14 points. So anything is possible if you snag a few wins. But I guess aside that it probably finals, the finals are, I guess, not going to happen for them in 2020, 20, sorry, 2021. And that's the Canterbury Bulldogs. And look, I'll be honest, as an Eels fan, I was I was a bit concerned, obviously, you know, the the Bulldogs burst out of the gate. They were up, what was it, 12-10 at the break or whatever it was. or something, oh, Sorry, or 10, whatever the score was at half. 10-6. 10-6, there you go. Shows how much I remember. Mm-hmm. You both that yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, up 10-6, looking good. And I guess, you know, the, that moment that changed the game quite literally you know, probably something that we don't see very often in, in the modern day rugby league. The pass comes out of dummy half, hits Dylan Napa in, in the head, basically. No idea what's going on. Goes backwards. Mitchell Moses toes the ball forward. Obviously, Brandon Wakeham holds him back. Penalty try. And, you know, the Bulldogs, uh, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, Nat, with the teams that, you know, when... When they know they know when to put the foot down, obviously Penrith down 12 nil. They've got that mental toughness to come back, and the minute that that try was conceded by the Bulldogs, the mental toughness just disappeared, and from there on out, it was pretty much the Eels for the, the majority of the second half. Yeah, and we've seen the Eels do that a few times this year as well. You know, start a bit shaky and then really put the pressure on towards the end of the game, um, which may be seen as winning ugly, but I actually think that the Eels are edging closer to Melbourne and Penrith than any of the other clubs are. I think Parramatta are well ahead of South in that regard because they're learning, um, especially someone like Moses, is learning to sit back and be patient and push the accelerator when he needs to. And we've seen them do that a few times this year. So I think they're really um, slowly improving each year, uh, each week, sorry. To be honest, at the beginning of the year, I didn't think much of them. I thought their first five or six weeks, they got lucky in a few of their games, you know, the loss against Dragons. I just thought they were almost, I guess, pretenders. But I do think they're really improving every week. And I think they've got the ability to maybe shape it up towards the end of the year now. Yeah, it was a good second half performance from the Eagles. What do you think of uh, Sean Russell, Ricky? Oh, look, I, mean, I think he, he. I don't think we'll. I, I don't think we'll see him play first grade again. Not not because he wasn't good, but I think the consensus seems to be that obviously Mike Gasivo is back for the game against Penrith. Obviously, only had the one game ban, but I think the end goal might be to see Ferguson come back in and. And obviously that that will mean that Dunstan goes, but you know you never know. But look, I mean, as far as debuts go, probably didn't have really too much to do with the ball from a you know like a, a rucking or attacking perspective. But you know he's he's certainly a good finisher. I think he's got eight tries in the the knock the knock on effect cup this year for the Eels, and you know obviously scored those two tries at the end on the back of uh, Clint Gutherson's good work, one from the scrum and one in general play. And yeah, look, it, it's. It's been a long time since the Eels have had, I guess, a, a litany of promising juniors that 
are able to play regularly. Obviously, Oregon Kafusi is another one who was just rested as part of the the rotation and whatnot. And there's plenty more coming through the system. And yeah, it, it, it's refreshing given that you know that depth in the juniors has has been a much maligned area for the Eels in in recent years. But yeah, to your point, Tom, solid debut, but probably he'll be obviously if there's further injuries, we might see Sean Russell again. But yeah, he probably probably won't be playing again unless there's you know, mass injuries or suspension like with Sivo was uh, from that game against the Tigers. Yeah, certainly. I think that uh, it's good to see for Eels fans that they're building up a little bit more depth. Probably something that we haven't seen over the past three or four years and it's probably prevented that uh, that deeper run uh, injuries at inopportune times. And, yeah, fingers crossed for Eels fans that uh, guys like Sean Russell, if called upon, can do the job later in the season. Yeah, I, I, I will say this, though. I think... I mean, the the people may disagree, or may or maybe they do agree or not. But I think when we look at the season as a whole, at the moment, buy of the season has probably got to be Isaiah Papali. I mean, I think for a guy who actually came to the Eels with the prom, well, not with the promise, but with the, I guess the 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 conversation with Brad Arthur, he was going to be playing as the as an interchange front row forward off the bench, obviously. You know, when Bryce Cartwright broke his jaw in preseason, they needed someone to fill in the back row. And, you know, Isaiah Papali was that man, obviously stayed there with the Ryan Mattison suspension after the Storm game. And, I mean, I think Andrew Andrew Voss summed it up, ben, summed it up best last week. I mean, some of his runs, it's just, it's, always, it's just that bullocking style of run where he just, he just refuses to go down. And I think he finished with something like, 13 or 14 tackle breaks and actually broke the Eels' own record that he had set the week before against the Tigers. So it's certainly, you know, it's refreshing to have a forward that is like that because I can't remember the last, probably probably Fui Fui Moi Moi was the last, I guess, you know, tackle-busting forward that, that the Eels have had and he retired seven years ago, whatever it was. You know, I think he's going really, really well. He's made a huge difference um, for Parramatta. So I think, yeah, I think he's excellent. I think it's a great buy for Parramatta. Well, the last game of the round was obviously one of the highest scoring games of the season to date. And I think if if you told someone, or sorry, if someone had watched the second half only, they probably would have thought that Manly had dominated the entire game. But, geez, there was anything but given the way the Titans played in the first half. Oh, it was just insane I, I remember um my sister sent me a message saying um it's so fun watching manly lose i wonder if this is what people feel like watching Penrith lose um and it was quite enjoyable for that first half just seeing them knock down a peg i guess and then um yeah as the titans have done so many times this year before they just leak the points but what we saw 48 points in one half it was worse than the storm um adverse tigers performance the the night before so it was just it was crazy. I think something quite interesting um, about the, the Manly games, I think that all of their tries came from, I think Garrick had four, Turbo had three. Um, there was a double in there from someone as well. So most of their tries were scored by, I think, three or four players, whereas Melbourne had the 10. Um, so it's interesting as well seeing where they get their points from. Um, but, yeah, it was, you know, talk about swinging the momentum and talk about not ducking your heads. They came out there and they were ready to go. And I guess it was also a huge sign of the, the rules um, in the game these days, if you can maintain possession, um, that's your key to winning the games even more so than it has been before. So, you know, good on Manly. They ran away with it, but wasn't looking so good at halftime there. Yeah, no, certainly not. It was one of the more remarkable stretches of 10 or 11 minutes, I think, 
Saab scored in the 52nd minute, then Garrick scored in the 55th and 57th, and you had Tom Trebovic in the 60th, and then Garrick again in the 63rd to complete uh, his four-try bag for the game. And it was just remarkable to watch, as you mentioned, and that just the momentum swing. Pretty interesting to consider the uh, the potential suggestion that maybe we should see the winning side kick off. Uh, yeah, I know that's been floated around on social media a little bit. Yeah, uh, but uh, an interesting point that was raised in, in counter that is that we, that may see teams who have conceded then trapped inside their 20 or 30 metre line having to kick away and the side that uh, has all their momentum may end up with better field position anyway. So it may actually end up reinforcing this, uh, this, this loop that we're getting. I think that we'd really need to trial that in something like New South Wales and Queensland Cup or even something like the women's origin matches this weekend. I know they don't have quite the same rules around the six again uh, or that, but it would definitely be interesting to see the impact that that would have on the game. Yeah, I, I think it's it's something that the Super League does, and I, I don't think a lot of their fans are, are I guess, fans of it, only because it, it, it's, it's a funny one. I mean, obviously, it it's not that the idea doesn't have merit, but I think... If we didn't have, I guess, this six again or constant six again crackdown and sort of teams just getting momentum on a whim, it could work, given that, you know, teams would have to, the opposition team would then have to, I guess, make the metres on their own merit, on, you know, without getting piggybacks at times that, that the referees may give them. But I think, you know, like some games we're seeing eight to ten, six against a half. And, you know, I, I think... If, if it goes back and forth and back and forth, it could be another way that you, you know, I guess disenfranchise the fan already more so more so than they already are. So I think it, it's not a bad idea in principle, but I think with the current rules in place, it may only, you know, push more people away or supposedly push more people away. I agree. And I think as well, um, you know, obviously there's been a number of new rules introduced um, this year and also we've got the sticks again rules which are relatively new still, only being the, the two years old. And I think that over time, with a few more off-seasons up their sleeve, we're going to see other teams adapt like some have already. So I think that this is maybe something that's going to sort itself out in time. And I don't know if we need to be um, putting in any more knee-jerk reactions than we already have to change the game as it is. And I think we need to just, you know, commit to the changes that have been made so far and stick it out and, and see what happens. As always, there's a bit of news when, when it comes to rugby league and the, the news of the week, as we alluded to earlier, Tom, you mentioned it, about Ben Eichen obviously is departing his role as the NRL 360 host and occasional commentator and he's off to the Brisbane Broncos as the head of football. And I mean, I guess for a team that needs a, a front office revamp, which is what they're doing under new CEO Dave Donaghy, probably helps to get a guy in like Ben Eichen who obviously you know, probably knows the Broncos system better than most and has certainly shown himself to be, I guess, quite an astute mind when it comes to an, analysing the game and, and, you know, just, I guess, hitting the mark, whereas other other commentators may be purposely controversial. Yeah, I think he's a great choice. And I think we, we touched on it earlier um, tonight already, but having anybody in a head of football role is hasn't been a bad thing to date. You know, we obviously had Gus in a very similar general managing kind of role at Penrith for a few years. And whilst that ended on bad terms, I think he can honestly take the credit for a lot of our success now because it's just somebody who is just overseeing and organising, basically. And Brisbane are a club that need a lot of organising in a lot of ways right now. So I think that 
he's going to be an excellent signing for them. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does. I really like watching him on 360 at the moment. He's always very measured in, the, in his opinions. He also doesn't take crap um, from what, what I've seen on 360. So I think that's going to be, again, someone a bit strict and who isn't going to put up with rubbish. He's also a good person to have at the helm there. Yeah, I guess it's just the start of that Broncos clean-out we were talking about earlier, and I'm sure uh, there's probably going to be a couple more key signings, both on and off the field, to come. Yeah, and they certainly need it, but probably something that the Warriors, I guess, needed or didn't need, if you are some of their fans. They've signed Dallin Wateni-Zelesniak effective immediately, obviously released by the Bulldogs. It, it looks like he's the replacement for Ken, Ken Mamalo, who obviously went to your Tigers, Tom, and... I, I, I mean, he's not a bad player, but I think if I was a Warriors fan, I'd probably prefer to be keeping Mamalo over over the purchase of, of Wateni Zelezniak. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Obviously, Dallin Wateni Zelezniak hasn't been in the greatest uh, form this season. He's had uh, a little bit of an up-and-down year. I know he was battling with injury a couple of weeks ago. I think it might have been a knee complaint he had uh, during one of the games that I was watching. And unfortunately... Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm not sure it's the right signing for them. I think the Bulldogs are the big winners out of this one because I think the 400,000 mm. or reported 400,000 that they save now with Wateniz or Esniak leaving could go a long way to the signing of someone like Sean Johnson. Yeah, I think I was actually um, – Dallin um, over the weekend seems almost taken aback by the Bulldogs' decision here and I'm a bit perplexed as to why he um, – he sees that because I don't think he's been a resounding success there at all. Um, so, yeah, I think I'm not surprised he's gone over there. And I, look, I hope he does well for the Warriors, but I see I see exactly what the Bulldogs have done there. And I, I mean, I guess another surprise, no surprise. I mean, he's can be an inconsistent player in his own right. Looks like Tyrone Peachy could be after a new home, despite the fact that he's looked pretty good for the Gold Coast Titans. I mean, I guess their long-term plan seems to be playing uh, Tina Fasu and Maliawi at locks obviously, you know, pushes Peachy to that utility role and he plays, you know, the 40 minutes and, and whatnot. But it, it's probably probably not a good market in the sense that he's a utility, doesn't have a genuine position, as we've seen even back at, back in his Penrith days, as you would know, Nat. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's it's not too many teams really have a need for a, for a utility, obviously, you know, half a half is what most teams want, but he can play there, but he's probably not going to be a long-term fixture there. No, he's not going to excel in the halves or anything. Basically, he's a he's a rover, you know, so he'll he'll come off the bench with a bit of spark and and rove around. But the other thing with with Peachy that I saw at Penrith, especially towards the end, was again rocks and diamonds, a little bit like Wonga Blake, like we've spoken about recently. And it's you never know if he's going to give away a penalty, you know, at the most important stage of the game, or if he's going to score the match winner. Um, and I, again, with these new, with the way momentum is these days at football clubs, I think those sorts of players are going to be almost phased out in their value. So I think you know you might have difficulty there. Yes, yeah, certainly. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. I was amazed at his performance on in that first half last week. It just seemed like Manly were falling for the same play over and over again. That little uh, dummy he puts on and then the little deft kick into the end goal. And it worked time and time again for Tyrone. And as you mentioned, now he's just that rope through the middle of the field. It's been hard this season. And we've seen a number of clubs look to employ that smaller lock in the middle of the field if they've got that uh, sizable board pack. And I think we're going to see it from even more clubs moving into the future. Yeah, certainly an interesting future ahead for one Tyrone Peachy. And 
equally interesting future ahead for Blake Ferguson. Obviously, we've seen him blink to the Western Force, obviously one of the Australian Super Rugby sides. And, I mean, look, I guess I can't say I'm surprised. I, I, I don't think there was ever really anything concrete, you know, to, to suggest that Blake Ferguson would be staying on at the Eels. I think it may not have been said publicly yet, but I think privately he's gotten the tap on the shoulder from from Brad Arthur that he's not going to be around next year. And, you know, obviously Union can, can pay some big bucks and it, it, it'd be a bit unusual. Oh, sorry, with, with all of that said, it'd be a bit unusual to see him in, a, I guess, a Western Force jersey. Yeah, you know, I think that Parramatta, you know, with all respect to Fergo, have probably outgrown him um, in the direction that they're going in, um, especially if they want to compete with those top teams. He's just a little bit too hot and cold for that. Um, so I think that I'm not remotely surprised that um, he's, you know, that he's not in their plans moving forward. The union thing, you know, it's, it's I guess it's an option. It's an option we don't often think about. But, um, you know, it'd be very interesting to see how he goes there. Yeah, I tend to agree, Nat, and I think that Blake Ferguson, he's just getting on a little bit now, 31 years old, he's had a couple of knee complaints, obviously didn't have a great season last year, and he had a decent start to the year, he had a couple of good games, but uh, unfortunately it sort of just petered out for him, and obviously those defensive concerns, he's always had a little bit of an error in him at an inopportune moment in, in a match, and uh, I think it's just caught up with him, and now might be the time to move across and, yeah, cash in on what has been a really great career in the NRL so far, he's been a star winger right from his time back at the Sharks through to uh, the success he had at the Roosters and then a couple of good years at your Eels, Ricky. Oh, yeah, look, I mean, certainly he's he's had some good moments. I mean, you know, you only have to look at, I guess, his acrobatic nature. I mean, I'll, I'll still never forget the the no try against your Tigers, Tom, where he literally he essentially like hurdled, uh, you know, uh, or close to hurdled a player standing at full height and did the, did the whole... As as Gus Good said, like the frog dance to to ground the ball, obviously it was a fo- the the ball had travelled forward, so it was a no try. And you know his his acrobatics are just insane. And I you know I think he's easily in the top three or four finishes in the game at present. But yeah, unfortunately it's that defensive side, that error side. And I mean that game against the was it against your Tigers? Tom Reed dropped like three balls off Adam Dewey's bombs, and was that the game? Yep. Yeah, it was. You know, he dropped, you know, made like three errors in, what, 10, 15 minutes and obviously put the Eels on the back foot. And so, it, it, it look, it's a shame. He's, he's certainly, he was great in 2019. Obviously, last year wasn't his best and picked up some niggles, had a good start. But I, I agree with Nat. I think the, certainly the club has outgrown him and, and given the, I guess, the abundant, the abundance of younger wingers or, potential younger with younger wingers even on the market it, it, it's it's the right move overall and i think the fact that what with mike acevo out they still chose to go sean russell short with sorry they still chose to go with sean russell even with hayes dunster in the side as well i think that just demonstrated that uh they are looking to move past blake and uh, it might be time to move on yes as, as i said rugby league's a business i mean fergo knows that and as you said don't chase the money in union. You're 31. Probably don't have too many years left in terms of uh, you know, the professional career. So may as well make the money while you can. Absolutely. Well, that wraps everything up for another episode of Take the Two. Obviously, next week is pretty much going to be a an origin dissection, um, a round 16 preview. Obviously, plenty of games to look forward to there. And 
you know, to do or die for Queensland if the Blues get the series win. Obviously, New South Wales will be in wraps, but Queensland fans will be, I, I guess, drowning in their sorrows. It should be a good game in the end, and, and we'll be here to discuss it all this time next week. Can't wait.